Good morning. Good to see you this morning. I want to start this morning by introducing you to someone. This is Michael Carroll. Michael was working as a garbage man when he bought a lottery ticket, and he won $14.4 million. And over the course of 10 years, Michael bought mansions, he bought cars, he bought drugs, he bought a lot of things, and in the span of a decade, he ran through $14.4 million. Today, Michael lives on government assistance and makes $500 a week as a butcher. Which brings up a question for all of us. When you find yourself in the midst of blessing, what do you do? When you find yourself at the top, what do you do with your resources? You know, a lot of people, I think, would react like Michael Carroll did. You make a lot of money, you spend it on yourself. That's just kind of the way of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus is approaching, the way of the world, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is redefining what it means to be blessed. He's redefining what it means to be, or I should say, he's defining what it means to be a disciple. And in the process, he's redefining what it means to to be blessed. The Beatitudes are a winning formula for the losers of society. The Beatitudes is a victory speech. It's a declaration of dependence. It's an announcement of who wins. And who wins is not the mighty or the affluent or the assertive or the wealthy or the educated. No, the ones who win are those who define blessed differently. You know, we would define blessed or blessed as one who has the power and the money and the affluence and the education and all those different things. But Jesus takes the societal structure and he flips the script. So poverty and meekness and mourning and mercy are words that define the one who is blessed, even though they're words that don't typically define blessedness in our culture. But the disciple of Christ defines blessedness differently. So, after our Lord redefines what it means to be blessed, he then moves to how Jesus' people are to use their blessing. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How many of you had to read A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens when you were in school? Or maybe you just read it for enjoyment. You remember the iconic opening to that novel? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. And even though this novel is set in the 1800s at the time of the French Revolution in London and Paris, I think it has a lot to say to us in this day and age. Because in a way, this is the best of times and the worst of times, isn't it? 
you know, I can take out my phone and I can call my daughter who lives 10 hours away and not only talk to her, but see her as I talk to her. The technology has become so great that I can actually interact with my daughter over the phone so that we can have what's called a FaceTime conversation. She will never know the struggle of putting your finger in a rotary dial phone and hoping that you get the numbers right so you don't have to start all over. She will never know the struggle of taking that twisty cord and wrapping it around the corner to get some privacy. She will never know the struggle of dial-up internet. I mean, somebody said it the other day that today a pauper lives better than a king did 125 years ago, and there's probably some truth to that. Certainly is a great time to be alive. But in some ways, it's the worst of times. We are divided as we've ever been. Just go on social media and scroll through the comments and the posts. The political temperature of this country is constantly on the rise. We live in perhaps the most prosperous time in our nation's history, but we also live in a time of great unrest. Everyone's mad about something. Everyone's angry at someone. Everyone's looking for a fight. So yes, it is the best of times, but it's also the worst of times. And if there was ever a time for the church to stand up, it is now. What this world needs is a salt and light revolution. Unfortunately, the salt has been kept in the shaker. You are the salt of the shaker, is how many people interpret that passage. We don't want to get out of the shaker. But salt is meant to leave the shaker and get into the soup. And I do realize that there are good reasons to stay in the shaker. I don't like the soup. Soup is hot. There are things in the soup that I don't particularly like. I don't like celery. I don't want it in my soup. Canned tomatoes, maybe even okra. I don't want that in my soup. There are good reasons to stay in the shaker. If I go into the soup, I disappear. I'll just stay in the shaker because I fit there. I'm comfortable there. I look like all the other granules of salt. This is where I want to be. Because when I leave the shaker, two things happen. Number one, I disappear. But number two, the character of the soup has changed which is the whole reason why I have to leave the shaker to begin with. Although the salt disappears, the flavor lingers. The salt changes the environment that it's dropped into. What that means is you can complain about our culture, but are you getting out of the shaker? Are you a part of the solution? Salt is meant to provide flavor. That's not very profound. I think you knew that. One of the major uses of salt, at least in our day and age, is to season food. Virtually everything we eat has some salt in it, even desserts like cakes and pies. They have a little bit of salt in them because salt is also a preservative. That was one of the main uses of salt in Jesus' day was to act as a preservative to keep meat from spoiling more quickly. It doesn't prevent the meat from spoiling, but it does slow the process. Salt also stings. We sometimes say things like pouring salt into the wound referring to adding insult to injury. Someone's already hurting, and we say something else to hurt them. We're pouring salt in the wound, meaning that salt stings. Salt can be used as an antiseptic, but it hurts. At least in the beginning, it stings, it burns. Salt does kill some forms of bacteria, though. And salt is necessary for strength. Roman soldiers used to put salt on their vegetables to give them strength. 
Salt also creates thirst. Why do you think bars have complimentary nuts? So that you will eat them and get thirsty and spend more money buying drinks. That's the reason. So thirst is caused by saltiness. The world is like a rotting piece of meat, like a slab of beef that's been left out in the hot Texas sun. It slowly starts to decay until the whole thing is rotten. As Christians, we penetrate the culture and we season the meat. We slow the spoilage. We provide sting because the truth does hurt, even when it's preached in love. However, the hurt goes away as the healing begins. We also provide strength to those who are weakened by sin. And hopefully, hopefully we make people thirsty. Now that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? How can one person, how can little old me make a difference in a world that has gone to pot? How can little old me get out of the shaker and make any sort of difference? But here's the thing. Here's the beautiful thing about salt. Just a pinch of it can do a world of good. There's a sociologist by the name of Robert Bella who says this. The governing values of a whole culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Only 2% can change a culture. That applies to your work, your classroom, your neighborhood, your, your city, your town. It applies to the world in general. Consider the city of Sodom. Consider Sodom and Gomorrah. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 18. We're not going to put every scripture on the screen anymore because that screen's not big enough. So look at Genesis 18, and here we have Abraham striking a deal with God. God is going to bring his wrath upon the cities, and Abraham is worried about the righteous people that may be caught up in it. Notice what it says in verse 23 and following. Abraham approached and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the entire place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am only dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the entire city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And shall I speak? Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. God accepted the deal. He was willing to suspend his judgment if just 50 people were found in the city to be righteous. In fact, the number gets lowered all the way to 10. If just 10 righteous people are found in the city, God will withhold his wrath. Unfortunately, not even 10 could be found. What if Lot had stepped up? Lot was there. What if he had done something? Lot's wife was so tethered to the city that when they were leaving, she couldn't leave the culture behind without taking one last look to her detriment because she was turned into a pillar of salt right 
If Lot had just saved his family, just his family, that would have been six. And if each of those six had saved one righteous person, if they had made just one righteous person, that would have been 12. That had been more than enough for God to withhold his judgment. Just that 2% change, just that small change, just that pinch of salt can have a profound effect. In my humble opinion, our world is not just decaying because of the rampant immorality. That's certainly part of it. But I think we've got to look inward before we look outward. Are we getting out of the shaker? Are we doing anything to make a difference in the world around us? Too many people are content staying in the shaker. And my friends, salt belongs in the soup. It may be hot, it may be unsavory, but that's precisely why it's necessary. We're the only hope for a rotting world. Notice Matthew 5, 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. What does that second part mean? I think we understand that we are to be salt of the earth. We know what that means. We get it. What does it mean to lose our saltiness to where we're not any good but to be trampled underfoot by people? Well, you have to understand that in Jesus' time, the houses typically had a flat roof. And on the roof is where everything happened. It's where all the activities happened. So there was a wedding reception, you'd have it on the roof. There's a party, a festival, you'd have it on the roof. It's kind of like how we celebrate on a back patio. For them, it was on the roof. Well, over time, there would be wear and tear, and the roof would develop holes, which would cause a problem when exposed to the elements, right? You have a leaky roof, that's not good. And so what would happen is gypsum was used to patch the holes. Actually, gypsum was mixed with water, so that you had this kind of paste, and then salt was added to it, and it was spread as a sealant over the holes in the roof, and the hot sun would bake it to where it would form a perfect seal. Now, that meant that the salt mixed with the gypsum was bitter. It no longer served any of the purposes that we talked about a moment ago, The only purpose it served was to be trampled underfoot by people. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You, me, we are the flavoring. We are the preservative. You are the healing. You are the strength. You are the one that will make people thirsty. You are the one that is the hope for this world. That's that's a little intimidating. It's kind of like Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent forest fires. Really, I don't know much about forest fires. That seems like a lot of responsibility, right? But you are the salt of the earth. You are the one that's going to start this revolution. You are the one that's going to make a difference. But you got to get out of the shaker. you got to get into the soup. You lose your saltiness. You lose your distinctiveness. You lose your usefulness when you refuse to leave the shaker. Okay, so enough about salt. The second part here that Jesus talks about, and that is light. You are the light of the world. What does it mean to be light? What does light do? Well, primarily it does two things. Number one, it illuminates. And number two, it exposes. It reveals. Look at it again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Light has one job. You know what it is? 
to go public. That is light's one job. When light enters darkness, light wins every time. Light immediately wins when it goes into a dark room. In order to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here, you kind of have to look at another statement of his. We've talked about it before. It's in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world. What's going on here when he makes this statement? What's the context of this statement? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the tabernacle of feasts or booths. And he is there in the temple, in the court of women, which was a busy place. It was a great place to collect an audience. And it says he is going to sit down to teach. And remember, when a rabbi sat down to teach, it meant that he was going to give you the essence or the core. You better listen, you better take notes, because this was the most important stuff. But again, it was the Feast of the Tabernacles or Feast of the Booths. And so there was a festival on the first night that was a ceremony of illumination. And so four big candelabra were set up in the middle of the court of the women, and they were lit, and they provided so much light that it said they, light, they lit every courtyard in Jerusalem. And it's in this setting that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's as if he's teaching, he's pointing to the candelabra, he's pointing to the light, and he's saying, that'll light you for a while. It gives off a lot of light. It illuminates a lot of things, but I will give you light for all of your life, for all eternity in fact, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world was a major claim because the law of Moses was a light that illuminated the character of God, but also exposed the severity of sin. There was darkness associated with the law, wasn't there? Because the law couldn't bring about the final absolution of sin. There was also darkness because Paul said it was a dividing line between the Jew and the Gentile. There was also darkness because the religious elite had turned it into something rote and mechanical. It became burdensome. But the law was never intended to be permanent. It was intended to be a light. It was intended to illuminate God, the severity of sin, and to point to Jesus, the Messiah. Which, by the way, do you know what the name for the Messiah was among the Jews? Light. He was the light of the world. In fact, light had special association with the Jewish people. Psalm 27 and 1 reads, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 16 and verse 19 states, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. The prophet Micah said, Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is is the light for me. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I am the light of the world? He's saying, I am all of those things. I am the one the law and the prophets pointed to. I am the Messiah that is to come. I am the one that's going to light up this world and that can light up your life for the rest of your life and on into eternity. I am the one you've been waiting for. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, he says, but will have the light of life. He who follows me. Some of you may have a version that reads, whoever follows me. So whoever means, not just you, Gentile, anyone, anyone who wishes to come after him. Now, this didn't set well with the Jewish leaders, of course. Their stubborn, hard heart wouldn't let the light in. And as a result, they remained in darkness. Jesus tells them they don't even know who God is. If you can't see the light, then you don't even know who God is. You don't even know the scriptures that you say that you've studied. 
Verse 27 of John 8 says, They did not realize that he, Jesus, had been speaking to them about the Father. The tragedy was that the whole history of Israel was designed so that the Jews would recognize the Son of God when he came. And they didn't even see him. The fact that the religious elite didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah is proof positive that they didn't know God and they didn't know the scriptures, even though they claimed to. They had become so caught up in their own traditions, in their own doctrines, in their own intent on doing things their own way, that they became blind to God. Jesus came to illuminate God, to expose sin, but also to reveal the remedy for sin. Everything that the law and the prophets spoke of was embodied in Jesus Christ. Yet these self-professed experts in the law couldn't see it. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then he says, you are the light of the world. So what does that mean for us? Think about the implications of that. Think about the ramifications of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, and then turning the finger towards you and saying, you are the light of the world. In other words, what he is saying is, we are transmitters of God's glory. What's the purpose of light? The number one purpose of light is to go public. It is to dispel the darkness. And we dispel the darkness of this world by illuminating the character of Christ. We could say it this way. We are his ad campaign. During election season, many times people will put signs in their yard claiming who they stand by. Do people know you stand by Christ? Do people know who you stand for? Can they see it? Are you lighting up your own little world first? Are you salt of your own little plot of the earth first? Do they see that you are standing for Christ, that you are his ad agency? Have you gone public? Are you publicly recognizing him? Can people see who you stand with? You know, one of the great themes of the Bible is the glory of God through the advancement of the kingdom. Are you living out that theme? God wants us to wake up and to shake up the world by waking up and shaking up the church. He wants us to start a salt and light revolution. The question is, are you in? Are you in on that? If so, you've got to leave the shaker. And you've got to get into the soup. And you're not just getting into the soup so that you can stir the problem. So that you can add to the hatred and the malice and all the anger that's going on. It's not your job to add to the division and to the unrest. It's your job to show the world something different. To turn, it's on its, to turn the world on its head and say, you know, there's another way. <laughs> you know, I got an opportunity one time to speak at the, at the prison in Arkansas where I was living at the time. And I just kind of put it out there. I said, you know, you guys have been trying it your way, and how's that work for you? Well, you're all in here. How about trying it a different way and just see what happens? The world's tried it their way, and you got to ask the question, is it working? Well, obviously it's not working. So we show the world that there is an alternative. There's another way. Maybe we can make them thirsty. Friday night, Libby and I went to watch... Top Gun Maverick, and we sat there for the thir- first 20 minutes like you do watching the previews. You know, you sit there and you watch the trailers, as they call them, for the upcoming movies. And the idea, of course, is that you will see these scenes that have been highlighted 
and it will entice you to want to come back and see the movie when it comes out. And the, the trailers are always the best part. They always show the best parts of the movie, right? All of you have probably been duped into, like I have, going to a movie because you saw the trailer and you realize, oh, the trailer was the best part of the movie. <laughs> it was only those scenes that were, that were good. The rest of the movie stunk. But the idea is you see the coming attractions and hopefully it makes you want to go see the movie and spend the money, right? Well, here's the deal. There's a big show in town. God is the producer. The Holy Spirit is the director. Jesus is the star of the show. And it's the kingdom of God. This show is playing out right before our eyes. The hero died. He came back to life. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back. And that's how the show ends with Jesus' return and mankind being separated, the sheep and the goats. Some will be separated and head to eternal peace, some to eternal torment. In the meantime, in the meantime, you and I are the coming attractions. We're the trailer. We are the preview of the upcoming show. And the hope is that when others see the preview, when others see the clip, they'll want to watch the rest of the movie. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for who you are, for who you're making us out to be. Now may we be salt and light. May we, may we seek to change our own little part of the world. May we do our utmost for your highest. God, help us to live out this sermon that you have preached. Help us to be disciples that are dedicated to you and your will. We're so thankful for the church. We're so thankful for this team that you have assembled. May we go out and change the world. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Luke's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you this morning, if we can pray with you. If you'd uh, like to learn more about discipleship and study the Bible with someone, we'd certainly love to do that with you. If we can encourage you in some way, if you've been thinking about beginning your walk with Jesus, maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is, why don't you come as we stand, as we sing.